problem is that this idea that that what we used to believe were inviolable sacred rights can be suspended because of an emergency, then they're not sacred. Then they're not inviolable. Then they're basically temporary and they're not rights. They're permissions. Hello there, everyone. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and I've got a very exciting interview today. I have Majid Nawaz on the show. You may have seen him on Rogan recently. Very, very cool. We've been trying to make this interview happen for some time now, as Majid has a crazy backstory. From being imprisoned in Egypt to working on LBC, where he eventually got cancelled for questioning a lot of what the government was doing in response to COVID and mandates, Majid has a crazy story and he has so much to offer in an interview. So I asked him to come on the show and eventually we made it happen. We actually went down to London. We borrowed his studio to make this happen. So thanks, Majid, for that. I know you're going to enjoy this. If you have any questions about the show or anything else, and then feel free to get in touch. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Ajit, good to see you. Finally. So, so um, it's, uh, it's actually, thank you, by the way, for coming down to see me. Pleasure. Um, I, know, I know that you've come all the way from Bedford. Yeah. Have you ever is, been? Of course I've been. Yeah, yeah. I used to travel all over the country um, to try and recruit people. Pretty much most of the cities, actually, I used to go to. <laughs> I, I was, I was, um, I was uh, 17 years old after my expulsion from Newham College for murder. But I didn't kill anyone. It was my bodyguard that killed people. And then he ended up in jail, got life. But I was 17. I started recruiting people at Cambridge whoa, 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 University. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back up, back up. Yeah. What? Yeah, yeah. You can't, you can't just... So I, I was uh, um, at Newham College in East Ham. You know East Ham? Yeah. Yeah. So I was um, basically recruiting people to Hizb al and my group. In those days, right? So I'm 44 now. I think we're about the same age. 43, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I call it... I'm one year older than you, but basically... Um, in those days, it was a, it was a, it was, you will remember when like the anti-Nazi league, the A&L, like the socialist workers had a little thing called the anti-Nazi league and it was mm-hmm. all like hip hop and, and anti-racism versus. So in those days, Muslim political organization was brand new. It was that we were the first generation that started organizing young Muslims on the streets because we were the first generation that were born and raised here. So when I left home at 16 and I went to Newham College and, uh, Basically, because I was in, in Hizb Tahrir, I was a, a recruiter for this group. Um, I started organizing people in, in the East Ham campus in Newham College. And uh, <clears throat> eventually I stood for, for the student union. And my whole slate were activists that were serving with me in this group. So I stood as president and every single union office position was my activists. Uh, so we, we basically started this huge campaign um, and we won. So we took over the student union. I was president and the women's officer, the whatever, you know, the finance, all of the positions were his Tahrir activists, all calling for a caliphate, right? So we took over this college. And then, of course, there was trouble because uh, a lot of the kids in the college weren't used to the fact that we start, suddenly became politically active. And there was some, <clears throat> there was some tensions. Uh, and this guy came, his, his, his name is Saeed Noor, a uh, huge guy. He turns up one day and I hear in the college that he's, uh, somebody's uh, looking for me. And the way I was raised, if someone's looking for you, you go and find them. So I went and found this guy, huge guy. And I said, what do you want? And he said, I'm here to protect you. I said, what do you mean you're here to protect me? He goes, well, I heard from the scenes and the brothers that you're doing a good job in the college and I'm going to be your bodyguard. Came out of nowhere. So I was like, all right, then. You know, you're a kid. You don't really think these things through. Feels prestigious. Yeah, so I said, all right, then. And then there was trouble. Um, and this one kid called Ayatunde Obanobe, I'm, you know, bless his soul. I'm not trying to brag or anything because, you know, 
it's sad. A person died, and I always remember this because that's a human life, you know? But he, unfortunately, one day, he pulled two knives out and started trying to stab Said Noor, right? Because the result of these tensions. And, and I was standing right there, and I said to, I said to, um, Said Noor said to the guy, actually, he said, look, if you don't put your knives away, you're going to get into trouble. I'm going to have to kill you. This is literally what he said to him. And uh, Ayatunde wasn't listening. He had two of them and he was slashing at Said Noor's leather jacket and uh, he was making contact. So to be fair, and this is what I said to the police at the time, considering the circumstances, Said Noor was quite patient because he said to him, you need to stop that or I'm going to have to kill you. It's literally what he said to the guy. And the guy didn't stop. So then he pulled out his huge machete and just plunged it straight through his heart. And then Jeez. a whole bunch of other people started hammering him in my head. And you know, the guy died. It was really sad. And I put this in my book, actually. Um, so we got expelled. So the, the college expelled a whole of the, the, the college expelled the president student union, which is me and all my committee. All of us in one go got expelled. The police came and they found me in my parents' home in Essex. And they said, we want to talk to you about the, the killing. So I said, all right, I've got nothing to hide. I mean, I was there. So I told him the story I'm telling you. I said, look, I said, in my amateur 16-year-old brain, I'm telling you, I think it was self-defense because he was being slashed at. Anyway, he, got, he, went down for, he went down for murder. I think he got life. The, the other kid, one of them with a hammer, you know, he was juvenile, so he didn't get life, but he got you know, a long time. I think he got 10 years or something. And they all went down. That was probably London's first, Britain's first jihadi street murder. That was probably that. Wow. So we got kicked out. And then I went, my mum put her foot down. She got really upset, as you can imagine. Uh, and she said, you've got to go to this grammar school. And I said, I'm not going to grammar school. I went to state comprehensive. I went to Cecil Jones. That school got shut down after I left it. A lot of my listeners are American. Yeah. You probably want to explain what a grammar school is. Yes, yeah, so the grammar schools are selective schools where you pass a, an exam at 11. And if you pass this exam at 11, you, everyone that passes that exam goes to this school for smart kids. Yeah. I didn't pass that exam, but I got quite good uh, GCSEs, which is the exams you do at 16. Yeah. I say quite good. I got one A in art and that was it. The rest were Bs and Cs and Ds. Um, but she thought I was just not trying hard enough. So she said, look, I've got, a, I don't know how this happened. She managed to organize an interview with a headmaster. And uh, she said, you got to go in there and he's willing to meet you. So I thought, shit, I'm not going to tell him about a murder. So, so I went into this. So I went in, Jesus. right? And his name's Mr. Baker, right? So I'm there now. I've just been freshly expelled, right? Everyone in South End's like, thinking, shit, who's this guy? There's a murderer, he's been expelled, he's back now. And I'm in this grammar school where I feel like I don't belong. Anyway, so I'm speaking to the headmaster and he's like, why do you want to come to this school? And I'm like, well, you know, my mom said I have to. And he says, all right, well, you know, convince me what, what you're going to bring to the school. So I started talking to him uh, and he let me in. He gave me an unconditional offer. So I ended up doing A-levels in this uh, grammar school. And, uh, and then that's when I was recruiting at Cambridge. But fast forward, this is a funny story, it has a funny ending. Fast forward uh, about, <clears throat> I'd say, seven, eight years ago. My economics teacher in that school, I, got a, I did a economics, uh, economics, politics, history. Well, my A-levels. I did economics A-level. Did you? Yeah. So my, I got an A for economics, right? So my economics teachers, the two of them, right? One became a magistrate, Mr. Moth, and Mr. Skelly became the headmaster after Mr. Baker. So Mr. Skelly's now headmaster and he's loving the work I'm doing. So he goes, he contacts me. He says, come back. I want you to speak to the whole school. So I said, all right, I went back there. Mr. Baker is about to retire and he's in the audience. So I get up and I've got the entire school in front of me, right? The whole, not just my class, or the, you know, my A-levels, the whole damn school's there from the little 11-year-olds all the way up to the 18-year-olds doing their A-levels. And I'm giving this speech and I'm talking about this whole story. 
And he didn't know until that day, Mr. Baker didn't know that when I came to him at 16, it was just after his expulsion for murder. So I tell the story and then I say, and poor Mr. Baker didn't even realize he let a kid into this school that got expelled for murder. His face went beetroot red. All the kids started laughing. Everyone was finding it hilarious, apart from Mr. Baker, who was like, but it was funny. And he, oh, he, he appreciated it in the end because he knew it ended well, you know? So tell me about this, this group, HT. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to try and pronounce it. Hizb uh, Tahrir. Yeah, I'm still yeah. not going to try. <laughs> um, how did you end up being part of it? What was it? Yeah. It's going to sound a bit violent, but yeah, I, was, I grew up with... So this wasn't the first knife fight. that I, You know, we had a lot of trouble in, in South End. So uh, before I... By the time I was 15, I'd probably seen more people stabbed than you have in your entire life. To Is that honest. racial tensions yeah, on the area? Yeah, racial violence. Right. So combat 18. Yeah. Uh, so 18, uh, it stands for the initials of Adolf Hitler. The one is A, a and the eight is H. And these were, these were at the time, former, former British army uh, who'd served in Northern Ireland, uh, some of whom, the bad apples of whom, decided to become combat 18 on the, in their spare time. Now in South End in Essex, we didn't have... That we didn't have the proper geezers that were with them. We had their little young followers. And obviously we were young, right? So I was 14, 15 years old. And uh, it would be, it would be your, your, just literally a walking target. I'd be walking down the street and suddenly you just hear someone shout, Packy, and they jump out the back of a white van. It was always white vans in those days. And they'd have hammers and they'd have machetes and they just literally hunt you for sport. And so we were, I mean, there's more friends I can, I mean, look, uh, Michael Giddings, Mo, we used to call him, half Kenyan uh, mixed friend of mine. He had, a, he had a hammer put to his head. He was whacked around the head with a hammer. Aaron got stabbed when I was 15. Aaron and we were in this big knife fight with Rowan and um, a mate of mine and Aaron, a mate of mine. And these guys turned up, uh, started calling us because we were mixed group, West Indians and, and me, right? So obviously all forms of racial insults. Aaron got stabbed on that day. It was, it was multiple problems we had. So by the end of which, I started carrying a knife strapped to my back for self-defense and protection against hardcore, like, neo-Nazis with hammers and machetes. Now, at the same time, the Bosnia genocide was going on against Muslims in, um, in Bosnia. Um, Srebrenica, yeah. Yeah, the, the 3,000 men and boys that were massacred in the mass grave there. So you can imagine we were looking at this from the, from the domestic scene, looking at the fact that we were being targeted. And then abroad, you see Bosnian Muslims who probably are aware, white, with yep. you know, many of them blonde hair, blue eyes. But they were Muslim. So yep. we thought, fucking hell, what chance do we have if that's going to happen? Two hours flight, by the way, yep. from London. And the Olympics had just been hosted there. So I thought, hold on, that's civilization. Yeah, It's not like it was like some backwater. And suddenly that's happening. And I, I know that can happen here because I'm facing it. So... That's what the, to answer your question, began me, my journey to um, almost in a, in a sense of the cycle of violence, to express myself and that anger through a reciprocal form of Muslim supremacism when faced with genocide and white supremacism. And so I basically decided that it starts with you need to defend yourself. It ends up with I'm better than you. And that's where we ended up. So we joined Hizbatahara, joined at 16 years old. Um, and the basic ethos... Well, the goals of the group, yeah. Yeah, the basic ethos is we wanted to establish a global caliphate. This is so, again, for your uh, audience, this is, it's important to put this into context. This is before Al-Qaeda. This is before terrorism was associated with Muslims. At the time, 
you remember this because you're my age. Terrorism was Irish. It was yeah. the IRA. Um, and if you're lucky, you'd hear something something about the left wing terrorists. So the so the when the Israeli jet was hijacked by the Palestinians, it was a left wing group. It wasn't a Muslim group, right? Mm-hmm. It was like these communists. Palestine used to Yasser Arafat and all those guys were left wingers. They were secular, and uh, the the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. These were all left wing and communist groups. It only became Islamist, and by that term, I mean a desire to impose one version of Islam over society, as opposed and as distinct from Muslim, which is just a traditional religious Muslim. It only became Islamist um, <clears throat> as, as the Afghan war kicked off in the 80s and the, you know, with the CIA backing the Arab fighters yeah. and, and bin Laden in Afghanistan to defeat the Soviets. That's when the Islamist thing kicked off, right? It was CIA funded initially. Uh, but up until, and that took a while to reach the rest of the world, but so up until we came along, um, terrorism wasn't associated with Muslims. We had, if you think of it this way, we were more like uh, the Trotsky to the Stalin of Al-Qaeda, right? So we we developed the intellectual ideas for the caliphate and popularized them among Muslims. And it's that, um, it's that sentiment that Al-Qaeda then built on to say, right, okay, you guys want a caliphate, we're going to bring violence to try and bring that caliphate about. So we were just like the group that was saying, we've got to have a global caliphate. Our means of getting that would have been to infiltrate militaries, to recruit soldiers for military coups, which I also did, but that's another story. Yeah. How much structure was there to this group? Very structured. And, and, and how global was it? Because if you were, you're saying you're about 15, 16, yeah. that was about when I first remember having access to the internet, but it was very limited. It was lists on Yahoo. It was pre-Google. Right. So it wasn't like it is now. So, so you would have had very limited access, but we, so we were trained in using, that was our modern tool, right? That right. was our blockchain. That was our, right, so we... We use that in a way that today you see um, black marketeers using you, you know, cryptos, right? Mm. We were the ones that pioneered the use of the internet for communication purposes for subversive messaging. Um, so we were heavily reliant on, on the internet. The group was global. It had one leader under which pretty much every country you can fit, certainly every Muslim majority country had a chapter of our organization nationally and then into cities. Here in the UK, we packed 12,000 Muslims into Wembley Arena for, for a caliphate conference, actually. In 1994, I think it was, uh, we, had, we put orange stickers all over the country. Some people will remember them. It said Khilafa, which is the Arabic word for caliphate, coming soon to a country near you. And we whacked them all over the country. I remember whacking them on police cars and finding it really funny. But we packed 12,000 people into Wembley Stadium. That's just here in, into Wembley Arena, sorry. That's just here in the UK. They came from all over Europe. But the group was founded in, just to give you some sense of its history, it was founded in 1953 in Jerusalem. It's an old group. It's not as big as it used to be. Uh, a bit like, you know, people went from being whatever, socialist to, you know, anti-globalism protesters, whatever. But this group was massive in the 90s. So it was established by Palestinians? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the founder, his name is Sheikh Taqid Din Nabhani, he's a Palestinian. Uh-huh. He founded it in Jerusalem. Wow. Yeah. And, and your like role within the group, I mean... Yeah, Danny was telling me beforehand that you rose pretty quickly through the group. Yeah, yeah. So I ended up, uh, basically I set it up in, uh, I was the first British Pakistani member to go to Pakistan. I set it up in Pakistan. Um, I set up the Danish Pakistani chapter in Denmark. Um, and then went to Egypt and I revived the group in Egypt because it had been crushed after an attempted coup. So the assassins of the former president, um, the president of Egypt, Anwar Sadat, was assassinated in 1981. And the assassins were the jihadis 
who used to be members of my group. So what happened was uh, they did what I just described to you. They, they basically got impatient and said, right, we're now going to use uh, violence. And so there was a guy called Salim Rahal, who was a, a member of my group, who trained the guys that ended up assassinating uh, Anwar Sadat in Egypt in 1981 for, for attempting peace with Israel after the peace treaty. I ended up in prison with those guys, but that's another part of the story as well. But basically, when I went to Egypt, it was to revive that chapter because they wiped the group out after the, after the failed um, coup attempt, mm. after the assassination. So I was then head of the Alexandria chapter in Egypt, attempting to revive the group there. That was the tough part because it was quite a How old dangerous you? gig. I was 21. Right. I got arrested at 24. I saw all of that happened before I was 24. So I was quite young. And then when I got back from Egypt, uh, after the five-year sentence in prison, um, the uh, British chapter wanted to make me the leader here. Um, I was on their leadership committee. And then... Um, they made me the offer. So one week before, they had told me that's what they wanted to do. But one week before, uh, one week after they told me that, I basically quit the group. And that was at the age of um, 28. And is there any pressure when quitting a group? Because oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I um, interviewed somebody with regards to gangs and the process of leaving a gang is very difficult. You can yeah. you can be killed for leaving a gang. Yeah. And it is like, yeah. does there, like extreme pressures that come with leaving the group? Well, it's not so much so you're not going to get killed by the group itself because the group is um, is very specifically focused on military coups, not on terrorism. Uh-huh. The danger isn't that. The danger is you get ostracized. That's, mm-hmm. that's That comes part of course. But the danger is not beyond the ostracization. The physical danger isn't just isn't in the leaving, which I think you can get away with and a lot of people have. The physical danger is if you start speaking out against the basic tenets of the ideology. Which you did. That's what I did. So that, that, that's what pisses off mainly the jihadi groups, you know. Um, of course, ISIS didn't exist by then. It's an interesting history. So everything we know, ISIS, Britain and Europe, was actually traced back to the, to the group I joined. Because the leader of the group that, when I joined it, his name's Omar Bakri Muhammad. So actually, because you're from Bedford, you yeah. know Luton, right? Yeah, of course. Very and well. Al-Mahajroon and their activities in Luton, Anjum Chaudhry and all those guys, that kicked off the, the same cycle of violence. That's why the EDL came about, yeah. right? It's the same cycle we're talking about. Tommy complains about seeing Muslims mistreating uh, soldiers in the streets of Luton. And I say to him, yeah, and I grew up fighting neo-Nazis. And it's the same cycle of violence, Tommy, mate. we got to get off that bandwagon, you know? His name's so, not Tommy, though, is it? No, nah, Stephen. <laughs> so, so oh, but I know him anyways, right? So, um, he, so that Luton thing, so what happened is Omar Bakri Muhammad was a leader of my group. Yeah. And he left um, <clears throat> as that jihadi scene that I mentioned to you grew, Yeah. So when I said that they built off the, the, the um, intellectual groundwork we built for a caliphate, the jihadis exploited that for violence, mm-hmm. quite literally. So the leader of my former group, Omar Bakri Muhammad, left and founded Al-Mahajroon, and Anjum Chaudhry was his little acolyte in that group. I mean, Anjum Chaudhry, everyone thinks he's a big, scary monster. He was my lawyer in that murder case in Newham College. He was my lawyer, right? He, you know, he's, it's why I'm always, I make fun of him, because he knows who I am. He's, he thinks he's, a, you know what I mean? But this guy, so he, he so Anjum, Omar Bakri got kicked out of the country, so Anjum had to become the leader. But Anjum was like, you know, you don't really take Anjum seriously, you know, for where, where I'm from, you know? So Anjum became the leader of Al-Mahajroon. And then what happened is, uh, as, the, as the, that com- sort of process of the violence used to exploit the ideas, the foundations that we laid, Anjum 
went down the path, Al-Mahadroun, as you would probably be aware of, Al-Mahadroun and Anjum's group is what became ISIS in Britain, yeah? So the, so the tragic killing of Drum, Drummer Lee Rigby yep. in Woolwich, where it was yep. an attempted beheading on the streets, that was Anjum's people. Right. Um, but they all, they were all an offshoot of my group. And in fact, the founder of their group was the former leader of my group. But there was no violence when you were in the group. No, no, no. So apart from that, Newham College yeah. incident. The, the group wasn't violent. Yeah, but that, that was yeah. a reaction. There was no yeah. established violence no, to, to, no. as a means to... The, the group, it just so that's why the, the analogies with socialism work, right? So as I say, we, the group was the Trotsky to the, to the Stalin. It need, the Stalin people came along in the end and started, you know, becoming violent, which is this Al-Mahadrun end, yeah? And then ISIS is what emerged from it. But our group, till this day, and there's still members of it, and, you know, I've criticized their ideology, but, you know, you've got to be fair and honest about this, otherwise you're not taken seriously. And in that scene, you've got to be taken seriously. People got to know that you're not just making it up as you go along, because otherwise they're not going to listen to you, they're not going to leave the group and trust you, right? That group, till this day, is not a terrorist group. And that's why it's not banned in, in any uh, liberal, democratic Western country across Europe. Every single European country, Britain, America, the group is still legal. It's in Australia, they're legal. They're in the Australian press, or I'm pointing at Danny because he's from there. Well, he lives there. Is, but they're, they're, So they're active in Australia and you mm -hmm. see some of them in the press, but they're not banned because they're not a terrorist group. And even my imprisonment, we were adopted by Amnesty International as prisoners of conscience. It's important to make that point, yeah? What People, does that mean? Prisoners of conscience means... And by the way, Amnesty, it's a difficult thing to get from Amnesty, right? They were founded for that purpose, right? A prisoner of conscience means you've been imprisoned for your ideas. And that's it. So we were imprisoned for our revolutionary Islamist ideas, not because we committed any crime in Egypt. It was because we were recruiting to a group that didn't have a permit to operate in Egypt. And that was the, that was the ally. So the specific charge... First of all, it's important to remember that the Egyptian constitution was suspended after the assassination of Sadat in 1981. They suspended the constitution. Now, this is relevant to today's times because it was suspended using the excuse of an emergency, right? National emergency. It never got reinstated. From 1981 until I was arrested in 2002, one year after the 9-11 attacks, the constitution had been suspended all that time. There were people in prison for 24 years, under the suspended constitution, under the emergency law, which was an extrajudicial process that put you through the state security courts. So we weren't tried in civilian courts. We were civilians tried in military courts. What's that saying? There's nothing as permanent as a... As an, uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. as a temporary emergency. So that constitution remained suspended. So we got picked up and we got put into what were called, uh, called in Arabic, Mahkamat Amin al which means uh, which means emergency state security courts. It is as ominous as it sounds. The prosecutor was sitting on the bench with the judge. The prosecutor was sitting on the bench with the judge and our defense was down there with us and we were in cages. Sounds a bit Guantanamo. We were held in cages, dude, right? So it was an emergency trial under exceptional circumstances with no rights. And the charge was, quite literally, and that's why I'm going to quote to you for an Arabic, it's seared in my memory. The charge was, which means propagating by speech and writing for a non-legal organization. That's what we got convicted for. I mean, so that's why Amnesty adopted us as prisoners of conscience. Their point was, you can't put someone in jail for their ideas, no matter how bad you think those ideas are. That's not an imprisonable offense. It's certainly not a torturable offense. And we were dragged through their torture dungeons. I mean, you know, they're electric electrocuting people on their teeth and genitalia in front of me because they don't like their ideas. 
You know, so that's not fair. You know, that's not right. So when people want to understand why terrorism emerged on the Muslim context, that prison I was held in, just imagine you torture a 17-year-old kid on his private parts in front of his dad to force the dad to confess. Mm. Yeah, now you're a father. Mm -hmm. I mean, now there's only so much psychologically you're going to remain sane after that until you become insane and are prepared to do anything to react because you feel like your dignity has been you know, basically taken from you, right? So yeah. the prison we were in is where modern day terrorism began, Jeez. right? We were in this prison called Mazra'at or a prison. And uh, they were, they were. I mean, the levels of torture, I don't even want to describe for you because it's not nice for your audience. But basically that's, that prison, Mazra'at or a prison is where the, the modern day founder of modern day jihadism, his name is Sayyid Qutb. If you look up his book, Milestones, it's like the, pretty much it's the original founding pillar of intellectual pillar for jihadism today. Ma'alim um, Fitriq is the name in Arabic of that book. All the jihadis and Islamists, they all know who I'm talking about. Sayyid Qutb was held in that prison and he was tortured in that prison. And, and he was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, which up to, until that point was a non-violent group, which was even more moderate than the one I joined. Yeah, they would stand for elections. Yeah. Right. And he went from that to pretty much inspiring Ayman Zawahiri, who was just killed the other week as a leader of Al-Qaeda. He was held in that prison too, the prison I was in. It was that prison I was in that produced Ayman Zawari. It produced Said Qudub because these guys, the Sadat's uh, killers that were, that, so by the time I went in, I was 24. They'd been in prison for 24 years, right? I met them, the assassins of Sadat. They, all of them had basically come through, basically after Said Qudub and his generation were tortured in those prisons, they founded the jihadi groups that these guys then went and, and joined and, and, and killed the president over, you know? So why did you turn your back on it all? Was it, was it in prison? Well, I, I studied a lot in prison. I debated everyone. I had communists in there, socialists. I had people accused of being Israeli agents, people accused of converting from Islam to Christianity, people accused of converting from Christianity to Islam. Everyone that the joke, the running joke in Egyptian prison was, if you change your mind under Hosni Mubarak, the dictator, yeah. from anything to anything, the crime is changing your mind, he's going to throw you in prison. So we had like, just imagine like, forget university, we yeah. had the who's who of the history of Egyptians, Egypt's revolutionary scene, yeah? from jihadis on the one end, assassins of Sadat, all the way through to uh, the guy that got second place in a fixed election against Hosni Mubarak for a liberal party called Hizb al-Ghadd. His name was Ayman Noor. And his crime was he got second place and they threw him in prison because he actually won, right? <laughs> so, so all of that. Yeah. So I spent, uh, we had this famous Egyptian-American sociologist professor, professor called uh, Saad al-Din Ibrahim, whose crime was he wrote an article saying that Hosni Mubarak shouldn't, he said, this is not a... Um, Mumlikiya, uh, which is the word he used, Jumhuriya, and so it was a combination of a republic and a monarchy. And in Arabic, he put that word together to say Hosni Mubarak should not make his son the next president. This is not a dynasty. And they put him in prison just for writing that article. And he's a famous Amer uh, Egyptian American sociology professor. Um, I mean, I, after jail, many years later, I spoke, I shared a, a platform with him in America. Like he's, he's an established, well-known commentator, but put him in prison. So he's in there with us. So all these people were in there with us. Was it, was it, te was it tense debates or was it like an intellectual environment? Yeah, it was, it was, no, it wasn't tense. Well, also, I mean, it could have been tense, but no one's going to, like we're on the jihadi side, right? We're all in the cells together. We're, we're, we're you know, no one's going to, everyone's going to be polite to us. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it, it was good. We had a great, uh, really, really in-depth conversations. Uh, the founder of uh, Egypt's largest um, uh, terrorist group at the time, it's known as Gamal Islamiyah. They had the numbers. Their founder was in there with us, the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, he was Dr. Mohammed Badir, who's in jail again now, but he's a very old professor. He was in there with us. We had a, the who's who there. So I spent, 
Um, I was sentenced to five years. I spent four years because we got released after completing our sentence, but they were a bit late in releasing us. It was meant to be two thirds of the sentence or whatever, three quarters, I think. But I spent that time in there debating with all of them. And because my mind was never satisfied, I kept, kept asking questions, but I didn't want to leave the group while in jail. That looks weak. It looks like you're doing it just to get out of prison. So I never did that. I got out, finished my sentence, came back. It's when they offered to make me the leader here. That's when I had to then make a decision. Do I want to carry on with this? I don't believe in it anymore. So that's when I left. What didn't you believe in though? What was the, you know, had, what was changing your mind on in terms of the group and their beliefs? All right, so I'm a Muslim. I'm very proud of my Muslimness. yeah? But I don't think I should force you to do that. It's basically, yeah. I mean, the thing is, when you're angry and you're 16 and everyone's forcing me, I mean, I, you know, as I say, describe for you, there's shit I haven't even gone into, right? But you want, if everyone's trying to make you something that you're not because they don't like you and they don't like what you look like, your 16 year old self says, well, I'm going to make you before you try and make me, yeah? So it was that kind of reaction. It's a cycle of violence. So in a sense, I grew up, you know, I mean, it, it's hard not to. When you're 24, and you're in prison with all these people, and you've got to make a choice of like, all right, am I going to... I literally had to sit there in my... Because I was in solitary confinement for four months in that prison. So I had to sit there in that time. <clears throat> we had no lights, no toilets, no bed. I had to piss on the floor where I'm sleeping and, and then give me 15 minutes in the day and then wash it down with a bucket. So in that moment, after seeing the torture, there was a moment where I had to decide, am I going to get revenge? I'm going to be that father that's watched it. This is a true story, by the way, the 17-year-old kid tortured in front of his dad. Am I going to be that dad? Because they took, they ripped my son out of my arms at one. I had a boy. He's 21 now. And so I'm deprived of my son. I'm in prison. I'm angry. And I had to make a choice. Am I going to be, am I going to turn into a killer for revenge? Or Because I'm. we weren't violent, you know? But I knew that they were trying to push us to that. Because that's the, that's the best way to destroy anything we're trying to do is make us violent so then caricature us. So I thought, well, you know what? No, I'm going to win this. I'm going to show you guys that actually you're the ones in the wrong. So I, I had to make a conscious decision to, um, to try and say to people there's a better way to do these things. You know? And the better way being? Well, first of all, uh, remove any hate. You know? that, that's got, it's got to start there because that's like it's... That's Stephen, Tommy, that you refer to, yeah, Stephen. Stephen Yaxley. Uh, with that, right, so you can, like, he's got, he's got perfectly legitimate reasons to be upset about the fact that Al-Mahajroon, you know, mm -hmm. Muslim Islamists were, were spitting on returning British soldiers, right? right? He's got reasons, that's not nice to do that, right? These, these, that's their job, they're not, they didn't make the decision to invade anywhere. They're just in the army and they're told where to be deployed, Right. So you got to, at one point, you've got to realize that, okay, you've got a reason to be upset, but then I've got a reason because I came before you, right? And we had a reason because of Combat 18. But then Combat 18, these soldiers served in Northern Ireland. They probably saw someone's head get blown off. Mm -hmm. So at one point, you've got to stop and think, oh, how far back am I going to go? Mm -hmm. You know? And I think it starts or go with- forward. Yeah, exactly. It starts with purging the hate from yourself. And that's what I decided to do. This show is brought to you by Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is, and Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin, and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger has recently announced the launch of their new Nano S+, and the larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. 
the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. And listen, I have been a customer of Ledger since early 2017, and I absolutely love the S Plus. Now, if you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Next up, it is BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money cannot buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against others and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is definitely the best Bitcoin casino out there. And if you want to find out more, please head over to BitCasino. .io, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And remember, please gamble responsibly. Next up today, we have Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without ever selling their Bitcoin. And with recent events in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach. They don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation and have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and they are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserve attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. But not only are Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs now. So if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Also, we have the Pacific Bitcoin Conference hosted by Swamp Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th, 2022 in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Corey, Yan, and Brady for years, and they are pulling out all the stops to make the Pacific Bitcoin a celebration of the Bitcoin community. I'm going to be emceeing the conference along with Natalie Brunel and Stefan Levera, and there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers, including Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, and Preston Pitch. Now, Pacific Bitcoin is going to have the right mix of education and good fun with unique experiences. There's going to be a surfing simulator, and it's going to be loaded with other events and parties before and after the event. They are bringing the brightest minds in Bitcoin in to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation-state adoption and mining to lightning. You do not want to miss out on the inaugural Pacific Bitcoin Conference. It's going to be a badass event. I'm going to be there. I cannot wait to go. I cannot wait to see you all there. Now, Swan is offering a massive 20% discount to listeners of the show. Just go to pacificbitcoin.com and use the code PETER. That's P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N dot com and use the code PETER. And so then your agenda changed in terms of what you wanted to do. Was it then to start educating people or try and help others maybe escape the group, try and have more peaceful debates? So part of the problem is if I, so the way I am now talking to you about this so candidly, yeah, I've always, I mean, I've written a book with this all in there, Mm. but the delivery, the candor and the lack of apology for it is, is what I can do now. At 28, when I left the group, it, you know, like, the problem is that you've got to remember, Bush was still president, Blair was still prime minister, we were still occupying Iraq and Afghanistan, and the EDL was rising. 
Yeah. Now, in that environment, to tell you the story un unapologetically, as I just have, including the murder in Newham College, it's difficult for people to trust where I'm coming from. Yep. And think this guy's genuinely trying to do the right thing. So before the man who you see sitting in front of you now could have emerged, I had to earn the trust of everyone. And this is what I said to people like Tommy, like, you know, like you could have done a lot better after leaving the, you know, I helped him leave the EDL. Yeah. Um, you could have done a lot better if you, like me, spent a good period of a few years within that circle, just challenging the reason you said you left is you said it was getting taken over by neo-Nazis, right? So you could have done a lot better by challenging that racism in, in your circles the way I challenged Islamism in mine to show people that you're trying to make amends. So I did that for 10 years. I set up an organization, the world's first, to challenge uh, extremism and terrorism from a Muslim community. So there was a Muslim voice challenging it, yeah? And it was those 10 years of work where working with governments, working, we, we you know, people like um, myself and my brother, Osman Raja, who, who works with me on Warrior Creed, one of our, one of our shows here, um, the Getter show, it's sponsored by Getter. He's a co-host in there. He's uh, one of London, one of Britain's first um, MMA fighters. He, he, he came up in the, in the fist fight scene in the, in the pits, now he, he trains uh, professional fight teams. Prize fighters is his team. And uh, see what we happened. He, he started. He joined my organization, and we he would go into prisons to speak to the highest level convicted terrorists for the purposes of you know help re rehabilitate them into society, provide mentorship. And meanwhile, I was doing the policy side of the work. And uh, we did that you know long enough. And um, the point is that you got to show people that you're serious when you say we want to end the violence. And that's what we did. You know, we, till this day, <clears throat> we've got like um, um, the show Warrior Creed, the very first episode, we got a message after the show from um, a New York Al-Qaeda convict um, who had traveled to Afghanistan to learn how to make bombs, who came back and it was a New York subway plot and he was trying to blow up the New York, New York subway, mm. got convicted after the first show, Warrior Creed, he watched it and texted in. He's like, oh man, I love the show. Thanks, keep going. Here in the UK, we've got the guy that was the head of the Muslim terrorists in Belmarsh. He's one of ours. You know, so what we did is for 10 years, we started trying to pull this all back in. Yeah, And uh, we feel like now is the time that we've demonstrated for a lot of hard work that we're trying to do the right thing. And actually now is the time where with all of that track record, having trained governments across the world, having done a lot of interventions in prisons with the convicted terrorists, holding it down the way we did, now is the time to, to really try and combine everything we learned from my time in, 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 in uh, his battalion and everything we learned through our work in counter-extremism to bring that all together now because it's a unique experience and it's a very, very interesting world. We're at a crossroads and the example of what's just happened to Salman Rushdie yeah. you know, is where we can bring all of that experience and put it into focused analysis, but also try and hold people together because that's going to be used again to try and divide communities. Well, I want to ask you about that, but just before beginning to that, because you talked about intelligence agencies, um, you know, part of the framework of the state, which is something at the moment, especially in the, the world where I live, in the Bitcoin world, yeah. people are very distrusting of the state. Um, rightly uh, so, by the yeah, way. Right, rightly yeah, rightly so. Um, but um, what do you feel is... Do you feel there is an important role for intelligence agencies or do you believe these agencies should be broken down? And So, obviously... Seems, sorry, the reason I bring it up is because it seems to me that counter-terrorism works super important. You know, we hear from the Met here about the plots they've foiled. Some of them sound absolutely 
terrible if they'd have succeeded. But at the same time, you hear about intelligence agencies also kind of fostering, you know, uh, issues in foreign countries. So it's kind of like, where do you... Yeah, well, look, before I answer that, let me just say to you, you won't get, you won't find or speak to anyone that has done more on that front with them than us. Okay. Yeah. I've been to Downing Street more times than I can remember. I edited Cameron's speeches on extremism that actually edited them. I met Cameron more times than I can remember. Met Blair, met Bush. Uh, I was banned from going to America initially. And I went in, they wanted, to, they wanted me to testify in the Senate under <clears throat> Senator Lieberman's first committee on Homeland Security uh, back in, 2000, uh, what was it? Uh, 2006, I think it was. And uh, so they called me in, but I, I couldn't go in. I was banned. And so that to, I was the first Islamist ever to testify in the Senate. Um, on extremism. So they got me what was called a parole visa because I was blacklisted because of my prison. They got me a parole visa, which is what you give mafia bosses to bring them in to testify. Um, It's like a temporary visa, hence the name parole visa. I wasn't on parole, but that's the way they got me in. And they had snipers in the hotels across me and I was under 24-7 armed security. Um, But I testified in the Senate's first committee on extremism under Senator Lieberman, right? Homeland Security's department, uh, Secretary Chertoff was in charge then, met him, trained the whole of Homeland Security. I've trained the FBI, I've trained New York police, I've trained uh, British government across the sector, all of them. We were the first ones to train all of them. Police, you know, civil servants, all of them, foreign office, we did the training across the board, right? So, and they all know that. And they all know me on a first names basis. No, No one can say that I haven't tried, haven't got the pedigree to say that I fought extremism, right? And the reason I set it up like that is because these agencies are doing more harm than they are doing good. And I'll tell you that. And I'm the one that trained all of them in this, yeah? They are, basically the problem is that you mentioned the foreign element. But but malicious or incompetent? Both. So their leaders are malicious. And, And the people that are serving, they're like the troops. So just think of the army. You know, those soldiers that went to Afghanistan and Iraq, especially Iraq, yeah? I mean, they didn't know there's no WMD. They get deployed, and it's their, not not their job to know. But uh, but uh, but the idiots that knew, right, and made that decision. And Dr. Kelly gets killed, and he, did, he gets killed. I mean, they call it suicide. Yeah, well, come on, after Epstein, you really believe that? So basically, you got the leaders. So you look at the U.S. now, and it's a classic example that Trump's FBI raid, right? And the whole thing, and and I can say this because look. People will say, oh, imagine you're defending Trump. I say, shut up. I wanted to destroy your entire system, right? And then if any, if anyone, Trump had a... I'm married to an American, raised Catholic, white American girl from Tennessee. I remember when Trump was going on about his Muslim ban. And they'll say, oh, no, it wasn't about Muslim ban. It was about six countries ban. All right, but he campaigned using the word Muslim, Muslim ban. Muslim, yeah. Right? That's the word he put in his campaign speeches. So don't tell me I can't say he campaigned for a Muslim ban when if you read his speeches, that's the word he used. Despite that, and that's why I'm saying it in this way, because despite that, I can see when a process has been politicized. And the FBI raiding a former president's house, when you know Hunter Biden, now the New York Times has admitted it, like many years too late, that that laptop is legitimate. You know there are crimes on that laptop that, yes, Hunter Biden isn't president, but they implicate the father. And the least you can say, if you're going to be charitable and give the benefit of the doubt, it's compromise on the father. That's being charitable, right? That's being charitable. But actually, it looks like there's crimes that the father's involved in and there's eyewitnesses. Bob Alunsky was Hunter Biden's um, business partner. And he's on record saying that the big guy is the president. And I met him. 
He's on record. You've got witnesses now. So you're telling me you're not going to, you haven't even touched, touched Hunter Biden, right? He's free and you're raiding Trump's house. So, uh, you know, you don't need to be pro or anti-Trump to see bullshit, right? And the point is- What are that, you saying though, that both should be investigated? What I'm saying is the politicization of the counter-extremism industry is to your question, right? Yeah. So when the, when the Homeland Security has put out this, this uh, policy now that, that the people that protested on Jan 6th are domestic extremists and could be domestic terrorists. Now, this is the politicization of the extremism agenda. What I mean by that is that could be trespass. It could be a criminal offense. I mean, whatever happened on Jan 6, it, it could be criminal, it could be trespass, it could be violent. But terrorism is something specific. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you politicize industries like this, you destroy the whole thing. It's like, if you disagree with me in this podcast now, say, imagine, I'm not so sure I like what you're saying here, yeah? And I say, well, that must because you're racist. That's, first of all, that's not fair on you. But second of all, it makes a mockery of what real racism is. And then yeah. anyone that actually faces racism is never going to be taken seriously anymore. Well, but, you know, in following you, this is what you always say. Yeah. Language is important. Absolutely. The words we use yeah. are important. Yeah. So, so, so Trump voters, even Jan 6 protesters, might have committed criminal offenses, just like those people here when they smashed. Remember when they smashed the um, Department for Education? Yeah. Right? The anti-student. Um, yeah, yeah. That's not terrorism, dude. Call it violence, call yeah. it trespass, call it criminal damage. Don't fucking call it terrorism because now you're making a mockery. People put their lives down. People, you know, as I said, I said this recently on a, on, um, a different podcast. Like I've been to, I toured 27 cities in Pakistan speaking out against terrorism. When Malala Yousafzai was shot in the head, I organized public protests in Pakistan with her face on placards saying we will not surrender, right? I went to Quetta, which is the Taliban headquarters in Balochistan in Pakistan, went to the heart of their city and organized a huge public talk against terrorism. I went to North Nigeria, right, where Boko Haram's from. I went to Bayera University and organized about 2,000 students speaking against terrorism with Boko Haram people in the audience calling me an apostate. So people put, I was wearing a flak jacket. That's all I had. That's not going to protect you from a bomb, right? People put their lives on the line to fight this stuff. And then because of your domestic little small-minded political agenda, you're going to now weaponize this, this work and use it against your political opponents. And I believe that our institutions have become politicized and weaponized across the board. China did this with the Uyghurs. Mm -hmm. So China when it rounded up the Uyghurs, said that they're all terrorists. Yep. And that's why I can no longer sustain the work I was doing. There, there, was, a, there was a terrorist element within the Uyghur of group, course. also because the stabbings they had in the Uyghur region. Just like Tommy says, there is an extremist element within yeah. Muslim communities. But it's not the Uyghur, it's the, it's the uh, separatists that you need, you need Think to about separate this. them. Any critique you might have of the EDL is the same with the Chinese regime. Well, it'd be like uh, back in the Troubles in Ireland saying all the Irish exactly. are representative of the IRA. Yeah, so when they round up, you've seen those videos and they're rounding them up in mass concentration camps. Yes. Oh, they're terrorists. Fuck, you know, no, that's not. the problem, yeah. right? So, so China did it and the way China did it is what's interesting because this brings us to tech and your, mm. your, your audience is a tech audience, right? So the way China did it is interesting. Hick vision cameras, yeah? Huawei and AI and facial recognition technology. So what they did, and you can check this all out, it's all reported in Seen the news, all. yeah? Is you can train your, your AI to recognize specific ethnic features. The Uyghurs are a Turkic people, they're not Han Chinese. So whereas the outsider may not be expert in detecting the difference, I can tell you, I can tell a difference just by looking at him, 99% of the time, I can tell you if he's Bangladeshi, Indian, or Pakistani. And if he's Pakistani, I can tell you if he's from North Pakistan or South Pakistan, just by looking at him. 
Yeah, but that's because I'm not an outsider to that, right? So, so there is a difference in terms of features and and body between Han Chinese and Turkic Uyghur people, which is why where they're from is called East Turkestan, yeah. occupied Xinjiang, right? They train their cameras to detect Uyghur features, and they used all of the fact they got all these cameras everywhere. They got a social credit system in place. Mm-hmm. They Imagine bringing, black, literally Black Mirror, imagine bringing the might and the power of your technocratic state to pick on a community. That's what they did using the extremism agenda in China. And so when I did my five-day hunger strike to try and raise attention to that, we had a, uh, it was a silent hunger strike for five days to get 100,000 signatures on a parliamentary petition because in the UK that forces a debate in parliament. They have to debate mm-hmm. it if you get 100,000 signatures on that specific parliamentary.gov website. So to get to the 100,000, I, I basically did this hunger strike. And it's to draw attention to this. That, I think it's three, two years ago now, that was for me the beginning of me deciding I had to get out of this extremism uh, industry because I realized that what they were doing was using everything I tried to build. They weaponized it. Weaponized it. And, right. and I knew that it's not just China because I knew, and you'll remember this, because remember two years ago, people were, didn't know about a Uyghur genocide and everyone was about to roll out Huawei in Britain. And, yep. and the Metropolitan Police still uses Hick Vision cameras. The very cameras, by the way, that the Times reported two weeks ago, you can look it up, that has been sending data. So Met, the Met Police are using these cameras and the cameras are sending data to China, to servers in China. What's going on there? The same companies that are using facial recognition technology to target an ethnic minority community, those cameras, that company are being used by the Metropolitan Police and the data is going back to the same people. So you just think that obviously they don't have good intent. You know, they're mm. already complicit in a genocide. So at the time, two years ago, when I was on that hunger strike, I realized that it's not that I can't trust an individual policeman that I trained. It's the institution. The, the system mm. is, it, it's, it, the problem is, and this is a problem with systems everywhere, which is why your audience will understand this. All systems skew towards power. They skew towards centralization. It's the, it's the nature of a system. It's like saying all men have a, Again, this is a, by way of analogy, but it's going to make sense. Look, a, a, a man and a woman's sexual drive, right? So a man is quicker to arouse and quicker to climax. And a woman takes longer to arouse and longer to climax. That's just a biological difference that, that you know, that is inherent within us. So, so no matter what you do, that's going to be the case, right? It's just, it's a quality of the product. So a system skews towards centralization because it exists to centralize. That's why it's there, right? So it will always find a self-perpetuating logic to further centralize because it was founded on that principle, yeah? Which is why the US constitution exists, to keep the separation of powers. The founding fathers understood this. Mm-hmm. So the, what I realize is it doesn't matter. This could be a lovely policeman that's got the best of intentions right up until, I mean, the head of MI6. I know him. You know, we, we've had drinks together, sat there, had a chat with him, John Soares. He, he came and visited me in prison. The, the, the very last head of MI6. He was ambassador to Egypt at the time, yeah? I mean, I know all these guys. The mayor of London visited me in prison, Sadiq Khan, right? So it's not that they're evil people. They all know me on a first names basis, you know? The problem is that a system cannot help but skew towards centralization and it will use any excuse it can to do so. So it's about 
using existing agendas, and almost the, the human species does this naturally, it seeks for justification to, to achieve an ends. And that justification, if it exists in the rhetoric that's already out there, such as we need to do X, Y, and Z to stop extremism, it will appropriate that for the purposes of centralization. And that's when I realized that you've got a problem in China with this extremism agenda being used for a genocide. But we are all tied into China for our tech at the time we were, right? We were about to roll out Huawei, it was before the genocide was acknowledged by our government and by the American State Department. It is now, thankfully. But we were reliant entirely on their tech infrastructure and were going to become even more so because of 5G. My, um, my friend Mark Moss uh, talks about this a lot. Yeah. And he says, uh, he looks at different cycles. He looks at tech. What are the three cycles, Dan? It's tech, financial, and cultural. Yeah. And he said, you tend to go in these group cycles. Yep. And one's like a, 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 a like a 40-year cycle, one's an 80-year cycle, one's like a 250-year cycle. And he said, they're all peak, they're all heading now to hit their cycle peak right now. He says, we're at peak centralization. Yeah. And what's happening is we're overcorrecting to the point whereby, you know, the governments, are, the, the things that governments are doing now are things we, you know, 20 years ago, we wouldn't have thought they would do. Yeah. You know, locking down Absolutely. entire societies yeah. and, and such. Uh, and what he talks about is that that when it overcorrects, it will recorrect, and the recorrection is the the rise of decentralization. Absolutely, and whether it's Bitcoin yeah. or uh, the use of cryptography, yeah. you know, all these things are now that is the revolution that's coming behind this, where people have kind of like we've had enough of this. Yeah, that's right, and and that's why I left. I called it. I was like, it, the, the problem is, if you think about it, if that lockdown and people like uh, Andrew Neil again. I've discussed with him many times. Nice guy in person, but you don't, you, you cannot let him get away with the fact he wrote that column that says, is it time to punish the unvaccinated in the middle of lockdown, right? Put it in the Daily Mail, yeah? Now, you lock down a whole society and you say, I'm going to only let, but I'm double jabbed, right? But for me, it's about choice. When I made that decision to say, I'm going to stop the hate, what, what that means is sticking up for people that are, that are deemed the other. That's what it means instead of hating on them. Right. And that means hard, hard decisions when sometimes when a whole society wants to pick on them, you've got to stand by people that are marginalized and are being demonized. Doesn't Majid, matter who it is. To be fair to the audience, yeah. when the first lockdown happened, I, I agreed with it. I thought yeah. it was a good idea. I yeah. mean, I was following the news from China and Italy and Have I was you thinking, your mind? Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I supported it at the start. I mean, yeah. I changed my mind during it because yeah. it went on for months. Yeah. Uh, and and I do have the benefit of knowing that. COVID wasn't as serious as we first saw. Yeah. I still think it's serious. You know, people have died and people have got sick, but I think the the uh, the cure was worse than the disease. Yeah, it was worse yeah, than yeah, the yeah. disease now, and I understand yeah. that now, and I, and I regret it. And yeah. I also once shared that there was an article once that was um, it was now a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Yeah, and you know, I shared that on Twitter. I, I said those words, yeah. and, and 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 that was the time where you know one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is that like. Being sat here with you now is just a series of coincidences and yeah. luck and fortune. I didn't set out to be a broadcaster or yeah, anyway. Yeah. I set up a podcast as a hobby five years ago and suddenly people like it. But yeah. with that has come this sense of responsibility. Of course. Like in the things I say and where they reverberate, but also the people I talk to and the things they say. I, yeah. I take a deep responsibility with it. And yeah, now I'm a lot. Well, I'm a lot more considered about the things I say because of that. Yeah, and it it's a learning me. curve, man. It's a learning yeah. curve. And to be honest, a lot of people are gonna if they hear that history you've just mentioned, because there's a lot of us that were against it from day dot. Yeah, but 
even I'm outflanked, right? There's, there's people that say, Magic, why did you even get jabbed in the first place? You're always going to be outflanked by a purer person. So that's not a good way to go. Hmm. Because, and then I say to them, I had to tell someone off the other day because he was like, well, you're double jabbed, you're a sellout. And I said, well, dude, you get dragged through a torture dungeon and then get injected in prison against your will and then understand why I was trying to show everyone I'm not troublemaking anymore. I'll go and get, are you telling me to get a jab? I'll go and get a jab, but you can't force people. That was my line, right? And you can't talk to me about, so, but the problem is you, if you go down that line, oh, someone's always going to try and outcompete you. The best thing to do is, as long as you're not fucking controlled opposition, right? Trying to pull the wool over everyone's eyes and now pretend that you're against it and then wait for the next thing like climate lockdowns. Oh, I'm suddenly for it again. Pe people need to forgive people that made a mistake. Mm and say they have the evidence now and they're adjusting their position. That's how we all learn. We're all on a journey, you know? And as long as we can have those conversations, that's the way forward. But the key thing is we must never do this again. We must never decide that it's okay to lock an entire society. As I said to Rogan on his podcast, like, what? give me one of your kidneys. I need a kidney, you've got two. I mean, literally, that's the logic, yeah. right? Now, you might think, yeah, but Majid, you're young and healthy too. Okay, but that's the point because... If you get to a point where you're going to triage and prioritize people and you're doing it through the social credit system, which is what China does and what we were trying to implement with a vaccine passport, because if you remember, it was linking health data to criminal record data, mm -hmm. right? That was on the yeah. damn apps, yeah? So if I get to a point where I've got more points than you, well, I deserve your kidney when I need one because I've got 100 points and you've got 10, so I'm more worthy and deemed higher uh, uh, earner, more intelligent, maybe more handsome. Right? I've got, to take your, I've got to take your kidney, you know? We'll see, we'll see. That's so what I said to Rogan. He was yeah. like, whoa. And that's the problem is that this idea that, that what we used to believe were inviolable sacred rights can be suspended because of an emergency, then they're not sacred. Then they're not inviolable. Then they're basically temporary and they're not rights. They're permissions. Well, the problem is sometimes as you try and discuss or explain these situations or these ideas, is that you can get classic conspiracy theorists. Yeah. And and yeah, and that's something I've I've called people in the past, yeah. but but amongst certain groups of uh, friends or uh, my parents' friends, they think I'm a conspiracy theorist because right. and I and I'm light compared to the, some of the people in the cohorts I mix with, but you get classed as such. But actually that's a that's a really frustrating pejorative. It's, so I had it when I was trying to explain CBDCs on Facebook yeah. to everyone. I was saying, yeah. yeah, the government's going to try and sell this. Yeah. They're going to tell us Bitcoin. They're going to tell you the benefits of and having it. And pretend it's crypto. Yeah, yeah. But, it, but it's control. It's yeah. complete control of your money. Yeah. And one of my friend's mums blocked me on Facebook. She said, I'm fed up with your conspiracy nonsense. It's yeah. like, Jesus, how do I get to the point where you can present this and you can see the facts in front of you? Right. So, so just like I said, I can get outflanked on the purity thing and like, oh, Pete, you, you were defending this stuff and then someone comes, yeah, but Magic, you're double jab. So you have to have humility. You can also get outflanked on the pejoratives. Yeah. Like, so so it all, it's all karma, man. So if one day you called someone a conspiracy theorist, even in private, it's come back at you. Yeah. It's just karma, you know? And that's where all of us have to learn that these cycles, they can go either way, yeah? That all we can do is have integrity and try and be honest and try and learn from experience, which requires humility. And that's it. Then the last thing, consistency. So you're now on something. You're saying, listen, I'm trying to warn people about CBDCs, yeah? Mm -hmm. You're going to get called names. Because why? Not because people don't understand. It's because there are people out there who benefit from CBDs coming of in. Of course. Like the Bank of it, who are richer than you, more powerful than you, who are going to fund people to call you a conspiracy theorist. That's actually what's going to happen. Not some ignorant uh, Facebook, not your friend's mother, but some ignorant person on Facebook thinks that you're thick when actually they're thick. No. 
that's 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 not the problem. That's actually that that lady. And again, I don't mean she's thick, right? I'm not talking about her. But the lady that that called you that name, she's not the problem. She can't influence the world. She's not going to bring or stop CBDCs. The problem that you're going to face is the people that want to bring it in mm -hmm. are more powerful than all of us combined. They're wealthier than all of us combined. They have the power and they're going to bring it. They're going to try and bring it in regardless. And the way you do that, if you're a corporate, is you basically, as every corporate does, you fund PR firms to make your case. And part of that is negative campaigning, just like in politics. So that's what's really going on. Is that they'll pay people on social media with bots to call anyone that challenges CBDCs. The AI will pick it up and a whole bunch of bots will start calling you a conspiracy theorist. We see it. I mean, we were, look, as a Bitcoin, you see it already. Yeah. Uh, you know, we know the honesty of what Bitcoin is, what it stands for, why people use it. We understand that uh, there are you know, people in certain jurisdictions in the world who absolutely rely on Bitcoin either as an activist yeah. or as maybe even a woman who wants to have access to financial services. There is legitimate human rights uses for Bitcoin. All we ever see from uh, some of the more leading press is negative article after negative article, misleading right. and mistruth. And we've we've uh, recently it's all propaganda. Said, well, it's yeah, all, it is, yeah. and we've started to see, we started to realise that who is funding these articles. It's it's been exposed, and it's it's frustrating. It's, yeah. it's really frustrating. And I guess it, I want to tie this back to the LBC because you talked about like you know, when people they've got things wrong, they've realised they should be honest, they should have integrity, apologise. Like I can imagine there's people at the LBC who who think they owe you an apology but maybe haven't given it or can't give it, yeah. but know they're wrong now. Of course. Do you want to, can you tell the LBC story? Because yeah, that's gonna where get, I... They're going to get sued. Yeah. Well, they're being sued. So, you know... Because you your, your show was big. Yeah, man. It was... Uh, so, I'm very proud of these two shows I've got now. I mean, That's Radical is uh, sponsored by Odyssey. Mm -hmm. And I've got Warrior Creed sponsored by Get. And I've got my Substack newsletter, Radical Dispatch, which is doing really well. In fact, I mean, it's it's... It's a, it's the highest earner at the moment, the Substack, right. you know. Um, well, that's a good thing when you got cancelled yeah, like that. That's right. People people supported me, but and I'm very grateful to people, and that's the love, you know. They're showing the love back. Mm. But the LBC lot, and the thing is, what really winds me up, and this is you're going to understand because I think I suspect that politically you're going to sympathise with what I'm about to say. You can't you can't make a fucking show about being all pro-minority voices and all like, let's platform marginalized voices and let's make sure that we're being anti-racist and all that bullshit that they speak here. When you recognize that ethnic minorities in particular have been experimented on medically throughout history. Like, so, so the African-Americans and the Tuskegee experiment is a famous example, but more specifically with vaccines and more intimately, the CIA in Pakistan, my second home country, my parents' country of birth. You know, I've got cousins and uncles and aunties that still live there. Like, this is very real, yeah? The CIA conducted a fake hepatitis B vaccine program on children in their hunt for bin Laden. When we know that as a recent example of national securitization of the health industry to achieve national security objectives, we know that. And it's a very real and intimate example of what happened. And let's not forget, in a field I was very, very instrumental in, in setting up, which was the counter-extremism industry for governments. I mean, I pretty much, you know, we founded that through Quilliam, yeah? And you're going you're gonna to manipulate all of that good work and the health sector to deceive children and take their DNA. And then who knows where that data's being stored, right? And weaponize it in your hunt for, on, on your counter-terrorism objectives. You're going to weaponize the health data, which, by the way, is what Hitler did. 
right? Mm. Weaponized health for national security. It, his version of national security, yeah? The principle is what matters. That He did that in principle, and his CIA did it in principle. They weaponized health in pursuit of a national security objective with children as the innocent victims. So now your LBC and the parent company Global, and you make a big deal about being conscious about ethnic minority tragedies, right? And the histories and marginalized voices. And I'm there saying, right, here's this story about the CIA. This is reported by Vox, by the way. Again, I mentioned it on Rogan as well. And, and he put up the slide. You can, yeah, we saw it. We yeah. saw your receipts. Right. So it's there, right? So it's not like it, we're not making this up. Mm. Now, I'm in, a, I'm in a company that claims it exists to allow people like me to speak in that way without being censored, right? It claims that, yeah, for too long, ethnic minority voices haven't been heard about their experience. So now I'm on this national primetime show on the UK's largest commercial radio group getting half a million listeners on a weekend lunchtime when people should be having their Sunday roast or drinking their Bloody Marys on a Saturday, and they're listening to this show. And you're telling me that I'm safe. I can speak my mind because you're here for me, yeah? And then that's I, how you built your audience. That's right. And that's what they kept telling me. that. That's what they told me, that, yeah, man, we're going to support you. You know, we understand this is specific. And, and I, so I'm on air and I'm saying, listen, first of all, I've been jabbed against my will in prison. And I know that you guys, CIA, you know, security industry have done this to children in Pakistan. You've weaponized the health sector for your national security objectives. So I'm not buying this. You can't tell me that you're going to force people to be jabbed or they get sacked, which is the no jab, no job policy, and that I can't ask questions, basically. That's it. That's what it comes down to. Because we've been abused in the past. How do I know you're not abusing this again? Why should I trust you when that's what you did? Trust the system. Go and tell that to those Pakistani kids that had their DNA taken. Like the, the Taliban started blowing up vaccine centers after that. That's what it does. In reality, physically, that's what it does. You ended up, that's why the Taliban blow up vaccine sent um, deployment in Pakistan and Afghanistan. That's why they do it, because that got exposed. The CIA has, by the way, admitted doing it and has apologized. So, you, so imagine, right, you do that, and then you come into the same people and saying, trust us. Fuck off. I mean, I don't trust you. You have to justify yourself. Who do you think you are? You have to justify why I have to believe you. Otherwise, fuck off, because I know what you did in Iraq. There's no weapons of mass destruction there. So, A lot of oil. Exactly. So, so that, that is the stance I took. And by the way, why, while being double jabbed. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using for buying and sending Bitcoin, but I'm still only buying, right? We're hodlers. The market's looking good. We're not sellers. And I am also using the Gemini app for buying the dips. And I set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy. And Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have Cake Wallet. Now, Cake Wallet is a non-custodial wallet, which means it protects both my security and privacy because it doesn't share my important information with unnecessary third parties. With Cake Wallet, not only can I hodl Bitcoin, but I can easily pay privately with Monero. Cake Wallet is accelerating Bitcoin adoption, since they now support buying gift cards instantly with Bitcoin, which can be used at over 150,000 merchants in the US. 
You can easily purchase the exact amount you need at the register and have the gift card appear instantly within Cake Wallet without needing to wait for any confirmations. And you also get to save an average 2% on purchases. And Cake Pay only requires an email, nothing else. To check out Cake Wallet, please head over to cakewallet.com or search for Cake Wallet in the Google or Apple app stores. Next up, it is BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a payment service provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, and now they are expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. If you are looking for a banking provider that understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Also today we have Compass Mining and they are not just a sponsor. I'm a customer of Compass 2 and I am back mining Bitcoin and I've been mining for nearly a year now and I've mined over 0.75 Bitcoin, which is pretty cool. Now, anyone can start mining with Compass Mining and to help you, Compass have launched the Compass Score to help you make informed decisions about your next mining purchase. The score highlights how good each ASIC deal is based on a number of factors such as price, miner age, difficulty, hashing power and the current Bitcoin price. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. Now, if you're interested in mining or you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. Uh, let me, help, help us understand how yeah. uh, something like LBC works, because I've only yeah. ever been independent. Uh, you you know, have producers and researchers, yeah. but is there like a hierarchy you talk about the... Like this is this is the agenda of shows are going to be making this week, or can you just turn up with your mic and just present and they accept? So it? I did what I'm doing here. I just would go in and speak. Okay. But other people probably I don't know what other people did, but they probably prepared. They had notes and they would speak to the editor. But I would from the beginning I was very clear. Like I know what I want to say and I know how to do it. Right. So let me just do my job. And they did. And that's how we built up those listeners. Did they give you any soft warnings first? Saying, look, we're not sure where you're oh, going with this stuff. budget. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That, and, and I told them to fuck off. <laughs> yeah. And that's what, you know, they got rid of me. And um, talk us through, like, it just overnight? So it was, it was a bit of a stitch up. Um, they, they published that tweet out of nowhere saying, we're terminating the contract because it was coming to, it's like, he served us well and the contract's coming to an end anyway. We're not renewing it which was bullshit because that was in January. I had a contract. They know this. I had a contract. The existing contract they said is ending soon was all the way until the summer, right? And they'd already agreed a new contract, which had already been uh, in emails, agreed to and everything. It was waiting my signing and I was away for Christmas. So it's all bullshit. They're lying and they know they're lying. They all know they're lying and they sit here in front of me, they know they're lying. Was, so, were they under audience pressure? Was it audience pressure? Were they no. under uh, political wasn't, pressure? It wasn't audience pressure. Is it the culture so of they the had company? the equivalent of radio bots that you see yeah, online. Yeah. That was happening, yeah? So there are people paid to call in to do the physical version of a bot, right? Mm. So that's all set up as well. But that's a different thing. That's PR companies again, basically. The problem wasn't that though, because that doesn't lose the money. It's the bottom line, right? What happened was with lockdown, LBC had just bought... Uh, this is a nice inside scoop for you. LBC had just bought all the outdoor billboards. You see these outdoor billboards yeah, with advertising boards? They yeah. used to be called Clear Channel. Clear Channel, yeah. Now they're global. You see global underneath them yeah. all, right? I know the guy that sold it to them. 
He had dinner with me. He's an Indian British guy, right? After he sold it to them, he was a fan of my show. He sends me an email. He knows this. And he's like, hey, can we have dinner? I love your show. I just sold all these outdoor billboards to Global. I was like, oh yeah, sure. So we had an Indian together. We were in Mayfair. We were having Cobra beer, right? With our curry. So this whole story is that they had taken a huge bank loan. This is also reported in the press, by the way. After lockdown, they reported this because their finances are in trouble. They had taken a huge bank loan to finance their acquisition of Clear Channel. Yeah, so that they could, like all monopolistic practices, like all systems, accrue more power. Yeah, they wanted radio and outdoor advertising. You see the how that would mm. be a self fulfilling feedback loop. Yeah? yeah, so they had taken a huge loan to get those outdoor billboards, and then lockdown hits. Who's advertising on outdoor billboards? <laughs> no one's outdoors. <laughs> Overnight, their biggest customer became government health warnings. Oh, yeah, okay. so suddenly you got a private broadcaster whose biggest customer is government again. That happened because of lockdown. No malicious planning. Yeah, mm. it's just how systems work. So now you've got a company that needs to survive, and the only people paying it to survive, while well, it's got this huge loan to pay off, is the government. So they're paying their loan back to the to the bank because they've just acquired all these outdoor billboards, and the only adverts going up are stay indoors, stay safe. You know what I mean? So the opposite of what you were saying. Exactly right. So in between my show, we'd have these annoying adverts every fifteen minutes. I'm saying ignore this bullshit. <laughs> you know, don't get don't get. Uh, turn into tyranny and then suddenly the break comes and it's like stay indoors stay safe so it was like it was very jarring and so I think at some point it became of like for the government it became very inconvenient because they knew the show was being listened to it was causing a stir it was the only voice on a, a national platform that was challenging any of this bullshit but it was challenging it in a very unapologetic way very, very direct with all the facts and all the receipts and all the bullshit. You know, we'd put, for example, this thing you said about the cure being worse than the disease. Mm. That's a question that we put to the government. We put, there was a freedom of information request specifically on that point. Has the government done an impact assessment, which is what it was called, on the costs of lockdown versus the benefits? And they had done an impact assessment. They never published it, right? Mm. And then the court orders the government to publish the thing. They had a time limit. They never published it. And the reason they never published it is because it, it showed the obvious that actually the benefits don't outweigh the costs of this thing and more people are going to die because of it than from what you're trying to save. They had that impact assessment. So it was very inconvenient because then there's me every weekend reminding everyone that they've never published, for example, this piece of evidence that they mm -hmm. have and that a judge has ordered them to publish. It doesn't look good. You know, and so I reckon at, at one point, somebody probably, and this is never going to be in any email, somebody over, over a drink probably said, listen, have a word. We're paying you a lot of money for these ads and your guys ruin it for us. It was, you know, I think the bottom line got affected, basically. So you think this came from someone in government rather than like the commercial director or whoever of LBC deciding that it was like, it, it didn't work? The well, but they would have had a word with the commercial people, yeah. That, so you think it actually came yeah. from government? I and mean, this didn't, doesn't work thing is bullshit. I mean, as you see, the the show was the the audience was rising and rising, right? Mm -hmm. We know that. Oh we, no, I I, yeah. I totally believe yeah. your show word. I yeah. meant like the juxtaposition of yeah, the show. Yeah, so it would have been someone having a word with a commercial people, but mm -hmm. then but then ultimately the, also because of speed at which it happened. Yeah. So I get back from Christmas, and as I say, we've got a contract till the summer and a new contract agreed. And the thing is, again, this can all be checked because my agents are J.K. Rowling's agents. They're not fucking with like little small time people. They all know this. We've got emails. Mm. Right, so we're with the Blair Partnership, right, which is the agency Rolling set up actually, and Neil Blair runs it. He's a mate of mine as well. Um, and we've got all the emails. We're like, yep, agreed, contract deal done. We've got this new contract, and we're really happy with it. It's all in email, mm -hmm. right? So 
I get back though, and what happens is I tweeted, I shall not go quietly into the dark. And my point was, I'm, you, you, you know, I'm not going to stop talking about this, guys, just because you're, you're, you know, you're now signing me for a new contract. I'm not going to just like, you can't buy me and you can't threaten me. You know, it's just not going to happen. You've got, you got to be worse than the Hosni Mubarak's torturers to, to try and cow me into saying something I don't want to say. You know, it's just not going to happen. You can threaten me with what you want. So I tweeted that. I'm not going to go quietly into the dark. I'm going to continue talking about this because actually most of it is going to come out after you guys are done with this bullshit. That's when you're going to see all the costs of what you did. The people dying of heart attacks, the people with all these adverse events vaccine reactions and all that stuff is going to come out eventually. And I've got to be there to tell those stories. And I think that's when they realize, okay, this guy's in it for the long haul. So that suddenly that tweet came out from them saying, we're, you know, thank you, but we're not going to renew the contract. It came with no warning whatsoever. They're going to get sued. Yeah. They're, they're, they're being sued. So what, an know? interesting question. Oh, sorry, go on. No, no, I was no, just no, going to say, what, what was the culture like at LBC? Were they, were, was it a purely commercial decision, do you think, or were they against it anyway? Did you, oh, did you have any, oh, yeah, like, yeah, no, allies? They, they were all for, no, no, they were, most of them, overwhelmingly, were following the, the sheep narrative. Yeah. Most of them, yeah. Did you have any allies who back you? Or Yeah, I mean, like, I don't want to, like, obviously, because some people are still there, yeah, yeah, so you won't get people in trouble. But that's the, that's the issue when you start to censor speech in different ways or where people start to self-censor. I, I mean, that's one of the things I, I hate most is once you, when, once you have these mob mentalities and people start to self-censor, it's still a censorship. Yep. It's damaging. Do you think in some ways, though, like... Um, so uh, I got divorced 10 years ago sorry Con it's my son's here um, in some ways I mean it was awful but it also it changed my life in, in other ways for the better I wouldn't be sat here I'd still be working in advertising in London I, you know, I've got this whole new life out of it yeah. do you think you know, I, in some ways in five years you'll look back and think that might have been one of the best things that ever happened to me so I got divorced about 10 years ago and Did I you? have a son as well yeah. and again so I really understand why you've drawn that because it does change you that analogy yeah is good because you think it's the worst thing that happens to you at the time it happens, but then you grow. And it's not to say it was a good thing because mm. you don't want to speak badly about your ex-wife like that either. It's just you grow into something else that you were, uh, that if not for that experience, by definition, you wouldn't have grown into. Yeah. So you have to accept it. And that the only way to, to look at experiences like that is to say, I am who I am now because of that. Yeah, good or bad, it's who I am. And I have to be ha happy and comfortable with who I am. So... Like divorce, this LBC thing is, to be honest... I've it was grown, a divorce. Yeah, and I've grown into what this is. You're sitting in my new studio, we've got two shows coming out from here, and we've got a Substack newsletter that earns more than the two shows, right? And it's uh, all under Radical Media, which is the group, yeah? And you can't get cancelled on this one. It's my business, you know? And what the model, as you know, is you, you, you build up your base, you build up your sponsorships, you build up your audience base, your listenership, and eventually someone comes along and says, here's 200 million, come on our platform, you know? I would love that. Yeah, but that's Rogan, isn't it? So, <laughs> well, you know what I mean? <laughs> if I get that, I, I will get my football team in the, in the football league. Yeah, but look at you. You got this and you got yeah. a football team. Yeah. I mean, that means you're, you're doing something that's working for you, you know? Was it worth it, Con? Oh, yeah. There you not, go. Not the divorce, obviously. It's your mother, yeah? <laughs> well, no, no. I mean, he, he loves I'm joking, his, I'm joking. He, I don't know what you mean. He, he loves his mum, but like, <laughs> yeah. he also enjoys yeah, yeah, this. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. you know, he loves the football as well. Yeah. I can see how much happier my dad is yeah. in this job. Yeah, that's yeah. So you should tell the mic what he said in case the audience yeah, didn't come hear. Come yeah, come here, come and say that. Yeah. Yeah. I said I could, uh, I can see how much happier my dad is doing what he's doing now. So yeah. that's what's worth it. Yeah. And we get to go to football every Saturday. Yeah, and see him smash them 7-1. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. So it's just, you know, you become, yeah. a, you become you now. And we can all look back with regrets. But 
you know, where's that going to get us, man? You know, we just yeah. end up depressed. Yeah. Well, listen, look, I, I love this and appreciate yeah. your time. And, and I know we're going to bring it to an end at some point, but I do want to ask you about something because it's something I don't know enough about what's happened yeah. with Salman Rushdie. Yeah, we yeah. talked about it earlier. Yeah. Um, I'm aware of him, but from when I was young, I mean, I, I want to feel like, I want to say I was probably like a young teenager yeah. when I heard about the satanic verses and, yeah. and I, I didn't know anything about it. And then he's kind of largely passed me by until recently. Yeah. I'm obviously aware of him. Yeah, you know, obviously aware that, you know, uh, he had a, a fatwa. Is that how you refer to it, Pudon? Yep, the yeah. Iranian regime put a yeah. fatwa. Now. And and then, for me, it seemed like oh, that was something in the past. Yeah, nothing to it worry was. about. All gone. It was. You know, and somebody's jumped on stage and uh, stabbed him. I think I read twelve times. And one of the things I've actually like, and an opinion that's even changed in the last few few days, talking to Danny about it, because I oh Jeremy as well. I I, I think I, my words were the lines as I absolutely support his right to free speech. I absolutely do. I also think sometimes maybe you know maybe just don't just there's certain things you can avoid saying. You don't want to provoke hatred through you know criticism of things that are quite important to people in terms of things like religion. But then yeah. Danny came back and I've got a quote here. Was it, was it his it? tweet? No, it wasn't. It was a quote from Salman Rushdie. Yeah. He said respect for religion has become a code phrase meaning fear of religion. Religions like all the other ideas deserve criticism, satire and yes, our fearless disrespect, which I think yeah, is brilliant. Yeah. yeah, and that was like yeah, no I I see that point. I mean I, I I guess it's because I'm not the kind of person he's he's going to create religious satire because it's just not me. But like I've I've gone round and round in circles on this. But I I know you're going to have looked at this and you're going to be able yeah, to educate yeah. me on yeah, what's I, happening, I, I where you wrote, think it's from. I wrote a Substack on it as well, so I do recommend okay. people have a look at that. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. Um, so listen, I'm going to imagine you're on a Google Maps right now. Yeah, yep. I'm going to ask you to zoom out. Yeah, so pinch in on your Google Maps and go mm -hmm. zoom right out. So you're looking at the whole planet now. Yeah, and not just this question of Salman Rushdie for a second. Yeah, yeah, because it's important. So a question as sensitive as this, it requires a bit of a, a throat clearing before I give you my view on that, right? So the throat clearing bit is this, as I'm sure you probably know, right, Danny, from your research, I'm pretty much the only Muslim in Britain you can find that's ever defended any of any of this stuff, right? Publicly on TV, out of Muslims and non-Muslims. You can't probably find even a non-Muslim that's done what I've done on the free speech stuff. When I stood as a Liberal Democrat candidate here in London, I even put out an image and said, Allahu Akbar minhu, I'm not, I said, God's greater than to be offended by this. I'm not offended. Let's just leave people alone because because there was uh, a group that were wearing it on their t-shirts and we were in a BBC debate and the BBC censored it. And um, it was a time I just helped Tommy leave the EDL. So people were like, Majid, stand by your principles. And, and I, you know, I, and then that led to a huge debate on Newsnight, still on YouTube, you can watch it, mm -hmm. where I'm debating Mehdi Hassan on this stuff, yeah? I'm like, listen, you've got to let people, you can be as offended as you want, but you can't, back to the point about you can't force your offense onto people, yeah? So I'm not saying you can't be offended. Be offended, that's your religion, yeah? Be offended, that's your prophet. You love him, be offended. But what you can't do is go around saying you, so in other words, I have every right to be offended. I've got no right whatsoever to tell you that you can't offend me. They're two different things. I can be offended, I can't tell you you can't offend me, mm. yeah? Your right to offend me exists while my right to be offended exists, right? That's the problem there. You can't tell someone they can't offend you. Otherwise, we end up where nobody can speak. So that's throat clearing point number one. Um, like on the extremism stuff, you won't find anyone in this country that's done what I've done on this stuff, right? I hosted, and again, this is still online. Everyone can check it. You mentioned LBC. Look it up. Mm. I hosted Charlie Hebdo staff on my show, right? No one's Prior done Prior to the... After, right? After. Prior to Charlie Hebdo is when I put that cartoon up. That's when I was with the Lib Dems. It became a huge scandal. There was... 
Were you targeted? Multiple death threats. Nick Clegg had to get involved as the Deputy Prime Minister to try and back everyone off. That's all in the news. You can look right. it up, yeah? Look up Lib Dem candidate Majid Nawaz, Nick Clegg, cartoon. It's all there. Nick Clegg had to intervene in the national debate to try and calm everyone down. This is before Charlie Hebdo. Can you imagine how controversial it was? Yeah. Right? But I did it on a point of principle to say, this needs to be shown to people that a Muslim can also say, I'm not offended. Yeah? And of course, a whole bunch of people were offended at me. So that's all throat clearing. Though. That's not my actual response to the Salman Rushdie case. I say all of that so that people take my response in the best of faith. Yeah? Mm-hmm. That I'm the one that has defended your right to do all of this. And I say, not forget Muslim, not, I'm the only one that's done it out of all communities, yeah? When it comes to actually posting this stuff and having TV debates and hosting the Charlie Hebdo stuff after there was one, one of the uh, staff survived the attack. She was on yeah, my show. One. Yeah, she was on my show, Yasmin, right? You can look it up. It's on the LBC website. So I've done all of that, yeah? Now I'm going to say, this attack was a attempted political assassination that had nothing to do with all this debate we're talking about. Right. So this free speech debate, as important as it is, it's the wrong framework to look at what's happening right now with Salman Rushdie. Because what's happened is, if you remember in the news, John Bolton was saying that the Iranians were trying to assassinate him. Yep. Yeah. Before that, the Saudis said, if Iran develops a nuke, we're going to develop a nuke. Right? The Trump raid in Mar-a-Lago, it just turns out a White House staffers reported they were looking for Iranian nuclear papers. When they're saying we're looking for nuclear stuff, the nuclear documents, it was related to the Iranian nuclear documents. This is all related to the Iran nuclear deal. You've got a problem now, and that is, does Iran get a nuclear bomb? Pakistan has one. Israel has one, though it's a policy of plausible deniability. Everyone that looks at the Middle East knows Israel's always had one. Even Israel doesn't deny it. They just say, we're not going to comment, right? Saudi doesn't have one. And there's a civil war going on right now between Saudi Mm -hmm. and Iran in the Middle East. Yemen is the battleground, yeah? And that's what the civil war in Yemen is about. Saudi interference. They're bomb carpet bombing the whole place. There's Mm -hmm. like child starvation going on there. That's all about this struggle in the Middle East about who's going to be the reigning supreme power. Is it Iran or Saudi Arabia? They're two competing interests and Israel's on the other side. So this nuclear deal, Saudi threatened to develop their own bomb if Iran does. The John Bolton, the reports of John Bolton being attempted to be assassinated by an, um, uh, an Iranian Revolutionary Guard operative, that's all linked to this. And the Trump raid is now being reported that there were the nuclear papers that were being searched out were related to the Iran deal. Yeah. There's an Iranian female activist called uh, Masih Ali Najad. Uh, she, on the same day, had somebody with a loaded uh, automatic rifle outside her house, basically threatening her. I think I've interviewed her. Yeah, you may have done. And then that guy was... Yeah, yeah. you may have done. And that guy was arrested on the same day Rushdie got attacked. So you put, you look at what you zoom, that's what I say, zoom out. Right? Yeah. And you look at all of this and you realize what this was, was an attempted political assassination by competing regimes over the Iran nuclear deal. And there are a whole bunch of people that may not want that to happen and scupper the deal. But, but this is a thesis. It's a thesis. So, yeah. the, no, but the thing is, the other one isn't even a thesis. This was not related to free speech. Yeah. The other one isn't even a thesis. It's a relevant principle that we all believe in, but that's not what happened here. This guy was an Iranian operative. His fake passport was the name he's using. His is all linked to the IRGC. The even the name they've given is linked to one of the huh. commanders. Was this what that. you said about yeah. Eric Weinstein? Said if you search by his Muslim name. Yeah, find well, that, that was slightly different, but on his name on the passport was that. But why? So why was Rushdie targeted? Because uh, so the Iranian regime. So think about the fatwa yeah, that you mentioned. Yeah. yeah. So Khomeini was the founder of the Islamic Republic of Iran. 
Khomeini put a fatwa on Rushdie in the 80s. He was the Ayatollah. Yeah. Yeah. And the founder. Yeah. So he was a supreme commander, but also the founder. That's why the fatwa sticks. Right. Because he wasn't just any old Ayatollah. Yeah. There's been two more after him. So what happens is Khomeini puts his fatwa on. Yeah. He dies. Khatami comes along. The next dude says, we're going to suspend the, we're going to not suspend it. We're going to cancel the fatwa. We, we're going to try and open up to the world. Yeah. Yep. This is in the 90s when everyone was like, when Tony Blair's in a tent with Gaddafi in the desert. Yeah. Everyone's trying to get along. So he goes, we're going to get rid of the fatwa. We've got to, you know, get along with everyone. So he gets rid of it. Khamenei comes along, next dude, and says, you know what? We're going to reinstall the fatwa. So he reinstalls it. And then he says, you know what? We're going to temporarily suspend it as opposed to cancel it. So the status of the fatwa right now is that it's suspended, not cancelled. Yeah. But then there was another guy in Iran, a big cleric, who says, while this fatwa is suspended, I'm going to raise the bounty on it. So he raised it up to 33 million or what, some figure around there, yeah? So the, the fatwa was in this kind of like, it is on and it's not on state, yeah? Right. So there's a higher bounty, but officially it's suspended. Now, back to your question about why Rushdie. So when you know that history, you know that any attack on Rushdie is immediately going to be linked to blaming Iran because Iran is complicit in the abuse of this word fatwa. Because by the way, in the religion, fatwa doesn't mean death sentence. This is another thing that really winds Muslims up, yeah? Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's always going to be people that will weaponize terms, yeah? All fatwa means is religious ruling. That's all it means. I could give you a fatwa now about whether it's allowed for you to drink that water in Islamic law. Like literally, that's just what it means, religious hmm. ruling, yeah? Is it allowed for us to be sitting, uh, I don't know, is beer allowed? What about non-alcoholic beer? Muslims aren't allowed alcohol, but non-alcoholic beer, is that allowed? The answer to that would be a fatwa. Right, okay. Yeah? So so it's important for your audience to understand as well that the term's been weaponized. The problem is, of course, then Muslims look like terrorists. When actually in their everyday conversation, they will be talking about, what is the Sheikh's fatwa on, can I walk into this building in this, you know, in this state of cleanliness when it's a mosque, should I have abolition? These are all fatwas you give, they're religious rulings. So, so the problem is the Iranian regime has been obviously... It's, it's, it's guilty itself in weaponizing these terms for its political objectives. So they call this a fatwa. That, that, that You can see the link, though, because it's a religious ruling that Salman Rushdie needs to die. So that's why the word yeah. fatwa came along. So anyone that attacks Salman Rushdie, because of the history of this fatwa, immediately Iran's going to get blamed. So Senator Marco Rubio, the minute that happened, puts out a tweet and says, it's time to call off the Iran nuclear deal. So that's why Salman Rushdie, because the thing is, whoever wants to, to scupper the nuclear deal will know that you attack Rushdie and Iran gets blamed. And people like Senator Marco Rubio will come along and say, we've got to cancel the Iran nuclear deal. So the real question is, who doesn't want this deal to go ahead? This was an attempted political assassination. I'm going to say one more thing now. It is, because of the state of the world we're in, it's not the first attempted political assassination. It's the only one the algorithm has actually managed to find you about. But before that, there was, let's not forget Shinzo Abe in, in Japan, right? He's just been assassinated, right? So mm -hmm. there was a attempted thing on, on John Bolton, the former national security advisor of Trump. He's saying the Iranian regime are trying to assassinate me. We're in a time, let's just remember, the Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated, which is what kicked off the World War, World right? Wars, so, yeah. so, so we're in a time of that again, right? So mm. basically it starts with, um, uh, it starts with proxy conflicts. 
Then it escalates, and then it, 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 you end up with a clampdown on your own citizens from fear of war, which is what COVID was really about, because it was concerned about bioweapons, right? And then you end up with assassinations, and then one of the, one day one of these assassinations is going to trigger a war, right? And that's what the dangerous situation we're in. So, wasn't, wasn't there a nuclear scientist assassinated a few yes, years ago in Iran? As in well. Iran, yeah. yeah. So, so these are also and, and remember. Qasem Soleimani, the commander of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, was assassinated by Trump. Yes. Right? Khashoggi Actually was, assassinated. That's right. Khashoggi was assassinated and chopped into pieces by Sal, uh, King Salman of Saudi Arabia in the Turkish embassy, in the Saudi embassy in Turkey. Right? So these are all political assassinations been going on. People, the algorithm will only bring you the one that everyone's upset about, yeah? Yeah. But they're, they're going on this. That's why I say zoom out a bit, yeah? Mm. And so what's going on is we're in a period where, where Iran is allied with China. That's basically the situation. Russia, Iran, and China is on the one end, and you've got the rest on the other end. And uh, that's the divide. And so there's reciprocal assassinations going on right now. Somebody doesn't want... The, and I'm not even passing judgment on the Iran nuclear deal as mm. to whether it's good or bad for the world. I mean, if you ask me, I mean, all the problem is war in the first place, yeah? But somebody doesn't want that deal to go ahead, and that's what this particular incident is about because you're right it's been there for since the 80s mm. this has been is going on to the point where Salman Rushdie felt that it's over which is why he was on that stage without the top you know security he used to he, have he still know? had two security there didn't he I don't know I think I think sure. there was police, police there police so but, who, who yeah. do you think is behind this attack then well, look, so whoever doesn't... What, the problem, the reason I'm hesitating that this now is speculation, right? Mm -hmm. This part, because... Maybe you can make an argument that the Saudis don't want it to go ahead. You can make an argument that Iran themselves don't want it to go ahead. You can make an argument the US doesn't want it to go ahead. So the, that's, that's right. And the reason is because in Iran, there are factions. The hardline factions who don't want peace with the West and then the softer ones who do. So it could have been Iran doesn't want it because they hate the West and don't want peace. Yeah, China is allied with Iran. Israel definitely doesn't want Iran to have a nuclear bomb. Right, so Saudi Arabia doesn't want Iran to have a nuclear bomb. So who, who? I mean, like, basically, what we know is this: the effect of this it will be to damage the the nuclear negotiations. But there's so many people that want them damaged. Beyond that, it's an intelligence operation to find out who's behind it. Gosh, you know. Well, man, listen, look. Uh... Wanted, wanted to do this for a long time and uh, fascinated as I expected. Uh, thank you. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks for coming down no, right, from Bedford. Anytime. You know, thank you. I hope we can get it to I flew in for this, by the way, from you, Tennessee. So, did you if actually? It makes you feel better. Yeah. Well, because I had to. So, ah. I, I was going to extend the trip. My, my in laws were like, stay until uh, Monday. And I said, well, you know, I, because we were two days late going out. Yeah. I said, well, I could do, but I promised Pete I'd be here for my, this, this oh, interview. We should so, put it back a couple no, of no, days. No, 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 but that's what I'm saying. You came, I said to yeah. him, I said to him, he's coming all the way from Bedford, so I've got to at least be there. You know? <laughs> were you in Nashville in Tennessee? Yeah, yeah, no, no, um, oh. Knoxville. Oh, we married oh, yeah. in Nashville. I love yeah, Nashville. But they're from Knoxville, so, but Nashville's beautiful. Nashville's become yeah. my favorite place in the US. Mate, if I was going to buy anywhere, I'd buy there. Yeah, Danny, you, you know, loved yeah, it, didn't you? Yeah, that's where we're from. The whole, that side of family is Tennessee, yeah. Nashville, Knoxville. Carthage. Are you are you out there a lot? Yeah, I mean that's my son was born there. I got married there. I mean he's born American, and that's where his grandparents are. You know, next, next time, time in Nashville, Nashville. yeah, we'll let you know because yeah. I'm there two yeah. or three times a year. But look, I appreciate it. I've wanted to do it for a long time. I'm going to want to do it again. Six months to a year, we'll, we'll hit Absolutely. you up and do it again. Well, yeah, as I say, we're, we're, and the other, oh, you're always welcome on. Uh, I think the kind of chat we're having, you can. It's warrior creed. It'd probably be more more our style. Maybe because rad, radical is a very long, serious interview format. You know, I'm I'm uh, I'm not always the best guest. I prefer yeah. to ask the questions, but maybe one day. Yeah. But give a shout out to all your platforms. Tell people where to go. Did you just diss me? 
No, oh, no, no I just me. Maybe one day. I'll be no, isn't it? Trust me, Majid, you don't want it. <laughs> do, I, do I like being a guest? No. I hate being a guest. But um, I'm sure we can bring it out. What, what kind of music did you grow up listening to? Heavy metal. You, you can do that. I need, I, so I, do you remember the Public Enemy Anthrax co- com, uh, of course, collaboration? Of the noise. Yeah? Yeah. That's right. And do you remember the IST... Um, Body count. Uh, body count. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, and yeah. I remember actually the um, the soundtrack to oh, what was it? Judgment Night was yeah. an entire album of uh, hip hop and metal bands. Uh, yeah. Faith No More did a track with Booyah Tribe. Yeah. The, the anti-establishment metal bands, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean yeah, that yeah. that was me. I mean, I, I yeah. nearly wore a Metallica shirt this morning, yeah. but then I didn't. But yeah. yeah, no, I'm I still listen to the same music I listened to as a teenager, yeah. which is basically heavy metal and yeah. a bit of hip hop. Yeah. I tried to listen to some of his. Drill stuff, but I'm yeah. just not called enough. Do you see what I did there, Danny? See, look, he's talking. Yeah, about you yeah. Don't. See, you do. You talk to me <laughs> yeah. about football, yeah. heavy metal. Yeah, but it's not a political show. It's okay. literally about fitness, health, wellness, lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I'm not that fair. But yeah. the last thing we just did, actually. So, Ma- so let me end with this because it's, yeah. it's a, important and it's also very interesting. You know Malcolm X, right? Yeah. What a lot of people don't know is that he had an eldest grandson, also called Malcolm called Malcolm Shabazz, which was Malcolm's name after he came back from the pilgrimage, Al-Hajj Malik al-Shabazz, when he got killed. Because when Malcolm stopped being like, all white people are the devil, he went on Hajj to Saudi Arabia and he came back, he said, I'm going to work with everyone to try and bring unity. And that's when he got assassinated. His eldest grandson is called Malcolm Shabazz. So our last Warrior Creed uh, podcast was about him because he basically was incarcerated at the age of 12 because Betty Shabazz, Malcolm's wife, her house got burnt down. Now, no one knows she died in the fire. No one knows if it was black ops, whatever, but they pinned the blame on the 12-year-old kid because he was in the house. They said, you must have set fire to the house. So they threw him in jail. He's Malcolm X's actual grandson, yeah? So he Mm. was incarcerated from the age of 12 through the criminal justice system. It's horrible, this story, right? And his grandmother's just died, you know? So he's been raised in the prison system as a 12-year-old. So he obviously went down the wrong way. Obviously, what 12-year-old kid wouldn't after such circumstances, you know what I mean? So in the end, he's trying to fix himself up. He also went to pilgrimage like his... um, like his grandfather, and he, you know, he started fixing himself up. He got a sponsorship to study in Iran. He got a, a presidential visa to go and study out there um, as part of his Muslim studies and stuff. And he was, uh, yeah, he's in, you know, African American in the U.S. Anyway, he gets arrested again. Um, jaywalking, like literally, actually jaywalking. They arrest him. They were harassing him all his life, and he put out this blog. And he said, the FBI keep harassing me. And he's, uh, he says, I think they're trying to, I'm going to get assassinated. Like the character assassination comes before the physical assa- assassination. That's literally a line in his blog post that he wrote, yeah. yeah? And then one day he goes to Mexico City and, and the story is, who knows what happened, but the story that's being told is that he gets a bar tab for $1,200. And he's like, what? I had a drink. What do you mean $1,200? So he gets into a dispute over the bar tab in a bar where the mariachi perform, which is, is yeah, yeah. So the cartels, mariachi, right? Mm-hmm. The, the performers. They're, you, they're not cartel, but they're hired by the cartel for, for the performance of the music. So, so um, basically, he gets beaten to death. Jesus. And killed in Mexico City. And it's very, very, very suspicious. And if you've seen Who Killed Malcolm X on, on Netflix, the documentary, you should watch it if mm-hmm. you haven't, because the whole thing was a setup. It's all come out now. That yep. New York police set up Malcolm X. And he'd see the grandson had written his blog saying, I'm being harassed by the FBI. And then he gets killed in, in Mexico. See, very suspicious circumstances. It's a mystery at the moment as to what happened. Of course, you can imagine the family's had a lot of trauma. So, because I met him, he attended one of my talks in, um, in Doha. I was doing a debate for the BBC Doha debates under Tim Sebastian's stewardship. And he was in the audience. And then another person in the audience who became a friend of mine as well called Rajat basically 
met him there. She's a Dutch Moroccan singer. And then she made some music about, collaborated with him on music and with Tupac's producer. So we were getting that story on, on Warrior Creed. And it's so, it's just, it's very, it's not, it's not like an interview. It's more like, you know, basically interesting stuff that we like to talk about. Well, I've got a few things. Some of them I'll tell you about when my son's not around that we can talk about as well. Absolutely. But uh, look, yeah. love this. Uh, just tell people where to follow all the platforms. Right. So so basically uh, on Substack, it's my Majid Nawaz on Substack um, called The Radical Dispatch. On my Getter profile at Majid Nawaz is Warrior Creed. It's exclusive to Getter every Friday at 11 a.m. EST, 4 p.m. UK. And then I've got a sponsorship with Odyssey, O-D-Y-S-E-E, where The Radical Show is on Odyssey once a week and we release episodes every Sunday. All right, well, we'll see that all in the show notes. Thank you so much. I love this. A pleasure. Yeah, do this soon. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you for listening to What Bitcoin Did. I hope you enjoyed that interview and also a massive thanks to Majid for having us down in London and allowing us to use his studio, also in telling us his full backstory, which is pretty crazy. This is a show I've wanted to make for quite a while now, and next time we are in the UK making a bunch of shows, I will definitely be asking Majid to come back on the show and record a part two. He has so much to offer, so many stories to tell. All right, any questions about the show, please feel free to get in touch. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com, and also keep your fingers crossed this weekend. Hopefully, Raoul Bedford will be hitting three wins in three when we play Burton away. Okay, have a great weekend, and I will see you all soon.